Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. I'm Katie Derbyshire. And I'm Florian Dysons. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling live on stage here in Berlin and beyond. Then we bring you the very best of those stories here on the podcast. Now we've all got together today to toast the end of another year. Thank you for ending to this year uh, with our favourite German tipper, Rotkäppchen. Woo! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Cheers! Cheers! And at the end of the show, we'll be talking about some of our favorite dead lady moments from this year. But first, we're going to hear about a fabulous dead lady, architect Zaha Hadid. There are a lot of splendid visuals that you might want to refer to while you listen or after you listen, and you'll find them in our show notes page at deadladyshow.com slash podcast. Zaha's story comes courtesy of our own producer, Susan Stone, who you know very well. She's a journalist and podcaster, and you can also hear her this month on the BBC... Presenting the history documentary Parcels of Care, debuting December the 18th on the World Service. But first, here she is from the stage at Akud. When architect Zaha Hadid was asked if she considered her building spectacular, she said, if you want to be discreet, don't build a mountain. <laughs> Zaha Mohammed Hadid was born October 31st, 1950 in Baghdad, Iraq. She was curious and independent, and with her two older brothers abroad, she had the run of the house. She remembered her father, Muhammad Hadid, as being very patient and tolerant of her many questions. He was leader of the opposition National Democratic Party and had been educated in England. Her mother, Wajia Asabanji, was an artist who taught Zaha how to draw early on, so she would leave her alone. Both parents were secular Sunni Muslims. Zaha remembered Baghdad of the 1950s as a fun, very open society, and she had a great childhood there. Her parents were liberal with her. They let her experiment and waited to see how far she would go. Young Zaha was very critical. At about seven or eight, she decided she didn't like her clothes, so she was allowed to design her own. Her mother had them made, and as punishment, she she had to wear them. (laughs) But her friends loved them, even if they were somewhat weird. She also designed her own room in the family's modernist house from the 1930s that was filled with what she called funky 50s furniture. (laughs) Zaha saw her first architectural drawings and models at the age of six or seven when a family friend visited with plans for an aunt's house, and she was completely intrigued. She said, My parents instilled in me a passion for discovery, and they never made a a distinction between science and creativity. We would play with math problems just as we would play with pens and paper to draw, or listening to music and reading a book. Math was like sketching. Zaha attended a convent school in Baghdad and said she felt lucky to go there. People don't realize Catholic nuns are insane. (laughs) In the... the (laughs) In the best possible way. (laughs) By that, she meant they really believed in education and that school was important for girls. Still, she recalled the day that she came home from school and asked her parents, why don't you pray like we were taught in school? And they said, well, Zaha, actually, we're Muslim. (laughs) So after that, she stopped going to chapel, and she found out that the Muslim and Jewish girls got to play instead. So it's a pretty good deal. 
Across from Zaha's school was this building built by Italian modernist Gio Ponti. In the slide, you can see it before and then after the many bombings Baghdad survived throughout the decades. It is still standing today. Modernism was the talk of Baghdad when Zaha was a child. Several top architects, Frank Lloyd Wright, Walter Gropius, I think you've heard of him, Alvar Aalto, Le Corbusier, they had all been invited to submit their designs by King Faisal II, the country's ruler at the time. In 1958, when Zaha was seven or eight, the Iraqi military mounted a coup. The monarchy was overthrown, Iraq was proclaimed a republic, and Mohammed Hadid was appointed finance minister. He served only two years and then was later imprisoned after another coup. Zaha once said, I would have become a politician if I weren't Iraqi. <laughs> anyway, by 11, she knew that she wanted to become an architect. She said later, it was not an uncommon ambition for girls of her generation. She went to boarding school in England and Switzerland, then attended the American University in Beirut studying mathematics, where she observed the link between logic, math, architecture, and the abstract shapes in Arabic calligraphy. In 1972, she began studies at the Progressive Architectural Association School in London, which was to become her adopted home, the school and the city, and she also later became a British citizen. The school encouraged creative boundary-breaking and alternative solutions, which suited her perfectly. She studied under famed Dutch architect Rem Koolhaas, who was her tutor and later her colleague, friend, and admiring rival. At graduation, he said, Zaha's performance during the fourth and fifth years was like that of a rocket that took off slowly to describe a constantly accelerating trajectory. Now she is a planet in her own inimitable orbit. It's notable that when Zaha studied at the AA, the number of women architects in the UK was only 6%. Today, it's closer to 30. I love this um, plaque here, this historic plaque that was put up. It says, most famous architects, 1847 to 2006, have been here sooner or later. <laughs> so at school, Zaha discovered deconstructivism, and the Polish-Russian avant-garde artist, Kazimierz Malievich, this is tough for me, Kazimierz Malievich. She was instantly drawn to his erupting geometries of suprematism and the experimental abstract architectural models he called architectonics. The painting on the left is from 1916 and it's called House Under Construction. Very fitting. <laughs> <laughs> this is Zaha's thesis project. You can see the similarities. It's actually, it's a painting called uh, Malevich's Tectonic. It's an idea for a 14-story hotel on top of London's Hungerford Bridge, which some of you might recognize, and it won her the School Diploma Prize in 1977. It's now in the collection of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. She joined the school as a teacher and stayed for 10 years. It was an exciting time to be in London. Punk and counterculture filled the streets, and rebellion was in the air. However, it wasn't a great time to build expensive buildings. But nonetheless, Zaha launched her own practice, Zaha Hadid Architects, in 1979 with a staff of four. She taught by day and worked on projects at night, drawing and painting until all hours. <laughs> Zaha was known to be warm and funny and was said to be the closest thing in architecture to Dorothy Parker at the Algonquin Roundtable. Here she is having a, a ball with fellow AA student Ron Arad, who went on to be an acclaimed industrial designer and artist, and laughing with Alvin Boyarsky, who was the director of the AA. 
His son Nicholas studied under Zaha and remembers her as a rebel who made her own clothes by stapling fabric together. <laughs> and she also stood out for insisting on drawing architecture instead of just talking about it. He recalled, we would have tutorials in her tiny house in the early hours whilst watching the movie American Gigolo over and over and eating wonderful food. <laughs> she really liked Richard Gere. <laughs> In 1983, at the age of 33, Zaha won her first international competition for the Peak Clubhouse to be built on the side of a mountain in Hong Kong. So I saw some of these exhibited at the Peak, which is not this, sadly, um, in 2006, and I thought, I don't understand what I'm seeing. She sees dimensions I don't. These paintings show what appear to be gravity-free buildings, splintered forms jetting out from the mountain. Unfortunately, the client lost the peak site, and it was never built, but her designs really put her on the map. She won more competitions for buildings that didn't get built and started to be called a paper architect. She lectured a lot. It helped to bring in money for the firm. And at one, an architecture student from the University of Stuttgart called Patrick Schumacher is there. He's bored by architecture, but suddenly intrigued again and determined to work for Zaha. He gets hired in 1988 by one of her associates, but Zaha is not impressed. She ignores him and then fires him several times. <laughs> I didn't like him, and I didn't want to talk to him. He got on my nerves, she said. But they find a balance, and he eventually becomes a strong supporter and collaborator, and later a partner in her firm where he still works. He looks a little like a Bond villain here. <laughs> he called her an... <laughs> We'll get to that. <laughs> he called her an intuitive genius who wasn't entirely aware of the power of her own vision. He said somebody had to argue that this was viable and life-enhancing, a highly functional set of innovations. I saw that to be my role. There are rumors that the two of them had a romance, but he disputed this later. Zaha never married, and Patrick later did. Whatever the status of their relationship, Zaha developed a series of pet names for him, as she did for many people she was close to. Potato, because he's German. Um, fluffy, I guess, because of his hair. And Cappuccino, because they're fluffy. <laughs> Patrick works on expanding the office to have more bodies on hand for more projects, and 3D computer modeling helps to move her visions into reality. This is the Vitra's fire station in Weilem Rhein, and it's her first major built building. And I have seen this one in person, which was quite exciting. She was originally commissioned by the Vitra design company to create a chair. What she and Patrick, <laughs> what she and Patrick came up with was more like semi-usable sculpture. <laughs> so Vitra said, well, if the chair is too restrictive, why not do the fire station? <laughs> uh, it's very pointy and uh, has a lot of uh, interesting features and angles. And, yeah, it was briefly used as a fire station and then later became a gallery. So the line between... <laughs> apparently this was planned all along. She got a lot of critique for this, but apparently it was always in the plan. Um, but you can see in this picture the little fire trucks parked there. So the line between art, sculpture, and architecture has been crossed. Zaha is no longer a paper architect. So she should have been on a high, but much like her later buildings, there were many curves to come. 
1994, she wins the competition for the Cardiff Bay Opera House against 267 other plans. There are objections to her design, so they repeat the process. She wins twice more. <laughs> her building is never built. The asymmetric design was rejected. Critics said singers wouldn't want to perform on an asymmetric stage. Somebody tell Frank Gehry that. Um, they said it wasn't buildable, and they didn't understand her drawings. She felt that there was a campaign against her, and she was likely right. She said, the fact that I was an Iraqi was a problem. The fact that I was a woman was a major problem, and I couldn't change either. They couldn't talk to me. A cabal of men. They said, don't worry, she won't do it, not over my dead body. One Welsh minister of parliament actually said that her geometric design was identical to the shrine in Mecca and said he feared a fatwa. That's where the booze go. <laughs> An Iraqi Arab woman architect, and particularly one from London, was not acceptable in Wales. They went with a local architect in the end. The firm felt stigmatized and, in fact, lost all of their competitions for almost a decade. But the team stayed with her. She recalled, I think in the 90s, none of us slept. It was all coffee and cigarettes. They were later able to use a lot of ideas from this era on other projects, and it was a great repertoire to pull from. And I just want to quickly explain that uh, competitions in architecture are a bit like for those of us academics or creatives who apply for grants. In other words, you do all the work and you wait to see if you get any money. <laughs> so despite later success, she remained bitter about the Cardiff project for years. Though Zaha's designs were slow to break through in the UK and London, she was able to do something for East End boys and West End girls. <laughs> I put this in just for that joke. Yes, that's true. She created stage design for the Pet Shop Boys 1999 to 2000 World Tour Nightlife. They called her a dream collaborator. She called the adjustable set a three-dimensional luminous landscape of projection and sound that fits in a suitcase. It could be adapted to different venue sizes and quickly set up and packed. Plus, it just looks cool with all these angles and lights. A lover of the arts, Zaha also designed sets for dance and many art exhibitions, and she also had her own paintings shown in major museums. Then, she got to build one of her own. This is the Rosenthal Center for Contemporary Art in Cincinnati, which I've also had a chance to visit. Um, she described it as a matroshka, a Russian stacking doll, due to the limited horizontal space. You can see that it's kind of stacked up in, against each other with various cubes of different sizes, and it's a little bit like a maze. Um, but there are curves here in the interior, as well as angles. New York Times architecture critic Herbert Mouchon said of the building, might as well blurt it out. The Rosenthal Center is the most important American building to be completed since the end of the Cold War. Others agreed. In 2004, Zaha Hadid was the first woman architect to win the Pritzker Architecture Prize, considered the Nobel Prize for Architecture. She was also the first recipient in the 25 years of the prize to acknowledge her colleagues for making work possible in an acceptance speech. It's said that she had only completed four buildings at the time. The angular one in the lower corner is the Degevo social housing here in Berlin's Stresemannstrasse, completed in 1993. She actually left the project before it was finished, so I'm not actually sure whether this one is counted in those four. Architects were now superstars. 
and Zaha was the only woman amongst the architects. A friend remembered a moment at the Venice Biennale when a young man approached Zaha, kneeled at her feet, ripped open his shirt, and handed her a pen and said, autograph my chest. <laughs> so after the Pritzker Prize, things really started picking up. <laughs> it actually becomes really hard to keep track of everything that happens in the mid to late 2000s. Her staff soon goes from 15 to 40 in three months and doubles by 2005. She says, every time anyone knocks on the door, Patrick hires them. <laughs> Zaha was awarded the Sterling Prize for Rome's Museum of Art of the 21st Century, also known as Maxi. She described it as a large chewing gum hill you can pull in different directions. And she said she liked to think of it as a Martha Graham dance piece, accenting the movement that comes to mark her work. Sinuous forms erupt from the old building, like frozen concrete rivers, they add stability and form a courtyard. Her points are starting to curve. And you can see in this picture on the corner the reflection of the old buildings that surround it, so, and also in the picture down there, that she really had to integrate her modern design into the existing structure and neighborhood. And the Italians loved it, so that was good. This was one of her last projects made as a 3D model with paper, pen, and cardboard. So computers were taking over, but even the modeling programs had to be pushed to keep up with Zaha. And while Maxi was being built, as you can see, it took, what, more than 10 years? As Maxi was being built, the firm won and completed two projects in Germany. Her BMW building in Leipzig is notable for flying open layers that let workers from different sectors interact. You can occupy space and make clusters of organization in such a way so that people from all levels of society meet each other. So you have the, uh, the car production line going by, and you have the desk workers being able to see it and kind of be in tune with the work that others are doing. And then the Faino Science Center pushes her design and technology even further with its complex geographies. It's a little bit like a concrete elephant crossed with a spaceship, and it takes cues from natural forms. It's only an hour's train ride away. <laughs> you pass it by the train, yes. Yes, definitely worth a stop. In 2011, Zaha gets her second Sterling Prize in a row for her work on the Evelyn Grace Academy in Brixton, London. It's notable for shared common spaces, maximum levels of natural light and ventilation, in a setting that encourages interaction for the students. I really love the racing track that, well, runs through the building. <laughs> <laughs> and then, <laughs> then you have these great curves, and yet it's still angular. It does look a little bit like an airport from a distance, but it's cool. Zaha was finally making her dent on London, and she wowed with her London Aquatic Center built for the 2012 Summer Olympics. The Guardian newspaper called it the most jaw-dropping municipal swimming pool in the world. With its swooping wave of a roof and cathedral-like interior, the great legacy of the 2012 Olympics. And in 2012, Zaha was named Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, DBE for short, for her work in architecture. That's the female equivalent of being knighted. Still, she said that year, you cannot believe the enormous resistance I've faced just for being an Arab and a woman on top of that. It's like a double-edged sword. The moment my womanness is accepted, the Arabness becomes a problem. I've broken beyond the barrier, but it's been a long struggle. 
It's made me tougher and more precise. And maybe this is reflected in my architecture. In 2012, she went on, being a woman architect gave me some advantages, but more disadvantages. I can't go golfing with the guys. <laughs> there is a brotherhood I can't join. Whatever I do, I cannot be part of that universe. And maybe I don't want to be part of that world. The girl who once designed her own clothes became a woman who wore others very well. <laughs> she was known for her flamboyant style and bold choices. She complained, they would definitely not talk about my clothes if I was a male, or my nail polish, or the color of my hair. They're so preoccupied with my appearance. But she is kind of a work of art herself, really. <laughs> I, mean, I don't blame them. <laughs> Along with her design team, Zaha also designed shoes, textured, sinuous, and towering from Melissa, Lacoste, Adidas, and United Nude, which is Rem Koolhaas's shoe company. See, architects can have shoe companies. As well as bags for Fendi and Louis Vuitton. And jewelry for Swarovski, Bulgari, and Jörg Jensen. Forms that snake around the body. There's also a Zaha Hadid take on furniture, perfume and wine bottles, lamps, faucets, glassware, and cars. <laughs> At some point, some critics start suggesting a little sameness, or maybe it's a signature style. Zaha was more in demand than ever, and contracts abounded from every corner of the globe. Here's the Heydar Aliyev Cultural Center in Baku, finished in 2013, 12? <laughs> 12 or 13. Every roof and ceiling panel in that building is different. And I think you can really see the calligraphy in this design, although it's also a bit like a um, whipped cream swoop <laughs> with windows. <laughs> However, Zaha was roundly criticized for working with a dictatorial government with a poor human rights record. And reports said that the city's urban renewal program came in tandem with forced evictions of more than 60,000 people. The Al Janoub Stadium, built in Qatar for the 2022 FIFA World Cup, between 2014 and 2019 brought even more controversy. It was reported in 2014 that hundreds of migrant workers had died in Qatar since January 2012 during construction work connected to the World Cup. The tabloid press hounded her, and a writer in the New York Review of Books accused her of showing no concern over multiple deaths on her project. But actually, they hadn't started construction yet, so she sued them for libel and won. On the lighter side, perhaps, she was also accused of having created a vaginal form in that stadium, <laughs> a, claim, a claim she found ridiculous. <laughs> then again, if all skyscrapers are phallic, no. <laughs> Throughout her career, she was called a diva and a hard-ass. Her buildings, like herself, were too big and too loud, too expensive and too challenging. But not everyone thought so. In the prize citation for the Royal Gold Medal of the Royal Institute of British Architects in February 2016, Sir Peter Cook praised her achievements and skewered her detractors in Britain. He said, let's face it, we might have awarded the medal to a worthy, comfortable character. We didn't. We awarded it to Zaha. Larger than life, bold as brass, and certainly on the case. Our heroine. How lucky we are to have her in London. Sadly, not for much longer. The next month, she was in Miami working on the 1000 Museum Residential Tower. She is hospitalized for bronchitis treatment, where she suffers a heart attack and dies at the age of 65 on March 31, 2016. 
She's buried between her father and her brother in London. It's a shock and a rift felt around the world. She left so many projects unfinished, including a building for the Central Bank of Iraq, which would have been her first project in her homeland. And there are so many more unimagined. The tributes to her genius and personality were many. She was an inspiration for so many architects and creative spirits, an icon who changed attitudes about women. Her friend and former teacher, Rem Koolhaas, expressed regret that she was rarely described as an Arab architect in the obituaries. The very thing that kept her outside the inner circle was now being ignored, and she was mourned as a British architect, finally one of ours. There were a few dramas yet to come. At the time of her death, Zaha's estimated net worth was said to be $250 million, and that legacy created some problems. The four will executors, her niece Rana Hadid, longtime collaborator Patrick Schumacher, a property developer and a stained glass artist, all became embroiled in a toxic legal dispute lasting four years. It started in November 2016 when Schumacher, who was left control of the business in a letter written uh, by Zaha in the same time as her will, made a controversial speech at the World Architecture Festival here in Berlin. He said, London's housing crisis could be solved by getting rid of regulations, privatizing public space, and abolishing all forms of social and affordable housing, including rent control, as well as, <laughs> as and developing London's Hyde Park. It, tur <laughs> it turns out Potato is a neoliberal. <laughs> Horrified by these unzaha-like statements and other bad behavior, I won't go into, um, <laughs> the other three executors tried to oust him and keep him from using the Zaha Hadid name for future projects. With the dispute settled in 2020, the bulk of her assets will go to the Zaha Hadid Foundation, a charitable body with plans to establish a museum and award scholarships focused on supporting the architectural education of Arab women in particular. So her legacy lives on in her own work and those of others, including the generations of students she taught and staffers she encouraged and teased. The world has had to catch up with Zaha. Zaha Hadid Architects is still building. It's made up of 400 architects of 55 nationalities working on projects in 44 different countries, including the first carbon neutral football stadium. <laughs> it's the world's first to be built from wood and it's in uh, Gloucestershire, England. It's called the Forest Green Rovers Eco Park Stadium. And the sustainable CSEP Shanghai campus in China, which will use renewable energy technologies and recycled materials to make this very cool, stripy, mm, modulating, silver, cool building. <laughs> yeah, I'm tired of talking about architecture. <clears throat> And there's a continued interest in public buildings from the firm that offer something for the public, despite Patrick Schumacher's personal beliefs. There's no major biography out there about Zaha Hadid, but there are loads of children's books, which I kind of love. <laughs> Zaha is incredibly well documented online, though. There are tons of interviews with her and lectures by her and feature stories. I did also find this book useful. It's conversations between curator Hans Ulrich Obrist and Zaha Hadid. Uh, Rem Koolhaas is sometimes along for the ride as a bonus. The cover is absolutely hideous, um, but it's great to encounter her in her own words and charming and surprising her questioners. 
There's so much more I could tell you about this amazing woman, but I'll end with a quote from Zaha's niece, Rana, who also became an architect, inspired by her amazing aunt. She taught us that life is best when you build bridges between people and not walls. Thank you. Susan Stone on Zaha Hadid, recorded by Simone Antonioni. Wow, that's a great last name. Thanks, Susan. It's my pleasure, and I have to say that might be my favorite of the talks that I've given so far. Um, This year, you know, it's been triumphant and tragic at times, but there have been some great moments for dead ladies, and we wanted to revisit some of them. Florian, you have the most recent entry. Tell us about it, please. I will. It's about Josephine Baker, who I talked about many years ago. Uh, You'll find it on the podcast somewhere. We'll put a link. Exactly. That's good. Uh, And it's about Josephine Baker, who is the first performing artist, the first black woman, and the first American to be inducted into the Pantheon's Hall of Heroes in Paris. I know. It's, uh, I mean, her actual remains remain in Monaco, where she was buried, she joins 75 men who are uh, buried there or are symbolically married there. Uh, and there's six women total now with Josephine included. The first, I think, was the famous L'Enconnu du Panthéon, which was the wife of a famous chemist. Her name was Sophie Berthelot. His name was Marcelin Berthelot. You know, we've forgotten him already. <laughs> and uh, the other women who are there are resistance fighter and policymaker Geneviève de Gaulle-Antonioz resistance fighter and ethnologist Germain Tillion, the great Simone Weil, who brought her husband, so to even out that situation, um, the great Dead Lady Show alumna Marie Curie, who also brought her husband, but he accomplished some stuff too. Plus one. Yeah, he won some Nobel Prizes. Um, there's also Voltaire, just just saying, who was a pal of my recent Dead Lady, who I gave a presentation on, you'll hear on the podcast next year. Uh, her name is Lady Mary Wortley Montague, and she brought vaccination to the West. Woo! <laughs> Shout out. That's really good. Um, my favorite story about the Pantheon is not women's history related. Uh, it's how in 2006, there was a team of urban explorers who, you know, the people who like, who like to live in the catacombs and ride their bikes down there and do stuff. Uh, they snuck into the Pantheon for a year built a whole secret office there to actually renovate the clock, uh, the 19th century clock that hadn't rung until since the 1960s, and they secretly fixed it. And then one day, the the Paris people were just surprised that this bell started ringing again. Um, And it was these illegal urban explorers who did it. Anyway, the Pantheon, pretty cool place. Illegal clockmakers. Illegal clock fixers. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Well, cheers to them and cheers to Josephine. Cheers to Josephine. Yay. All right, I'll go next. Uh, Mine was announced in October 2021. I'm cheating a tiny bit because it technically doesn't come out until 2022. I think it's in February. And that's the Anime Wong Quarter. So check it out. Here's a picture right here. You can see her. That's pretty. Yeah, peering out over her hand with her her bangs sweeping gently over her face, and it's got this really beautiful kind of framing of lights. What do you call those? Klieg lights? uh, (laughs) Yeah, dressing table lights or lights of the stage, and that's to commemorate, uh, of course, Anna Mae Wong, who was the first Chinese-American film star in Hollywood. 
she is not the only one coming on these coins. They're a quarter, so that's 25 cents. It's a quarter of a dollar, of course. Doesn't sound like a lot, but still they're very collectible. People get really into them. And the other notable quarter ladies coming <laughs> are uh, writer Maya Angelou, nice. astronaut Sally Ride, mm -hmm. Cherokee Nation leader Wilma Mankiller, and suffragette and politician Nina Otero Warren, who was the first Hispanic woman to run for Congress in 1920. Now, it's said that she lost partly because the public found out she was divorced. Oh. Yeah, times <sighs> change, I hope. <laughs> So these quarters are part of a series from the U.S. Mint, and they were chosen by the Public and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, and they're part of a series that will continue through 2025, so making change. Ah. <laughs> Good work. It's time for change. Is that better? <laughs> <laughs> all I know is I cannot wait to get my hand on one of these. Yeah. I'm all about the public commemorations as well. Uh, but in a, an English setting, because the cultural organisation English Heritage, they've been basically going around putting up these blue plaques in places where, where famous people once lived and worked for the past 150 years, which is quite impressive. They do have, however, a bit of catching up to do on the dead ladies front, as you can imagine. But this year they've installed six new plaques for women. Bit of a mixed bag, I have to say. So some of them you've certainly heard of, like uh, Princess Diana. Oh, yeah. You've heard of her, I believe, yes. Mm. Um, but there's two women that I'm really excited about that they've commemorated now. The first of them is Caroline Norton. She was a social reformer, also divorced, who fought for her rights after her marriage failed, uh, which led to the Custody of Infants Act of 1839. So it was the first time that women got to have custody of their own children up to the age of seven wow. <laughs> uh, in um, English history after their marriages failed. And the other one is uh, Ellen Craft, who escaped from slavery in uh, Georgia and the States and uh, went to the North and campaigned for abolition. Eventually, she and her husband had to come to London as refugees in 1850 and they carried on campaigning, they toured the country, they wrote a very successful book about their adventurous escape. And they raised five children in a house in Hammersmith, which is right near where my mum's from. <laughs> so I want to see that next time I'm there. I love these blue plaques and I just love to imagine people walking around and seeing these. They're quite visible. We often feature them actually in, when we talk about um, English dead ladies. <laughs> uh, they're visible on the outside of houses. Um, and I think nowadays, you know, you've got your phone with you, you could just whip it out and go, who was Ellen Craft? And uh, be inspired for a future dead lady show. I hadn't heard of her, so I'm really pleased to have found out more. Awesome. Lovely. So what's your favorite dead lady news of the year, listeners? Let us know on Twitter or Instagram at Dead Lady Show, or you can drop us an email to info at deadladyshow.com. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsons and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast <laughs> is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Our theme song, Boop Doo, is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. Thank you, Katie and Florian. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Susan, for everything and always. <laughs> and thanks to everybody out there listening. We'll be back again soon with another fabulous Dead Lady. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat. Cheers. Cheers.